Amen. Please be seated. If you've got your Bible today, will you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2? Well, the particular text I'm going to read is there on page 9 in your bulletin. 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. And move in our hearts, Lord, now by the Spirit we pray as we hear this and put it to work in our lives. In Jesus' good name, amen. It's a reality of following Jesus Christ in this particular time that there is, as you all feel every day, every week, there's a real disconnect between what goes on in here and what life is like out there. Um, you know, once you walk out that door in a few minutes, once you get back on your phone and are kind of back in the flow of life, you know, you feel this every day. The activities out there really don't overlap with the activity we're doing in here today. The ideas and belief structures out there are very different from what we talk about and get excited about in here. The priorities and desires that drive the world, you know, outside the walls of the church, it's very different from what happens in here. And that, I think that's kind of a widening disconnect in many ways. And Christians, we all feel it, but I think we all deal with it somewhat differently. You're going to have always kind of the evangelical, you know, evangelistic types that are really kind of revved up. Let's take what we do in here. Let's take it out there. Let's go tell people about Jesus and tell people, you know, speak Bible to them. And, you know, the challenge, of course, is that you're just talking a completely different language. It's bold. You can admire the courage there. I'm not always sure it's effective, particularly. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done, but I wonder about the effectiveness of it. I think a lot of Christians, as they feel this tension, just end up living sort of parallel lives in some ways. You know, you've got your worship life and your Christian fellowship, but then you have your whole other life, and it's very hard not to feel like these are sort of parallel universes. You really don't have much intersection. You know, maybe you pray at lunch, but beyond that, really. And a lot of churches, feeling this tension, have spent a lot of time and money trying to make what goes on in here more like what's going on out there. You know, let's kind of take the mountaintop experience of worship and let's try to bring it down to street level so it's super relatable, where the threshold's not that high. You kind of walk in here and from the music to the talk to, you know, the latte to whatever, you know, it kind of feels like maybe you could, sort of like what you're used to in other places out there. And, you know, that has, there's something to it, but I think we got to be a little bit careful here because if you bring what's going on on the mountain down to street level, sometimes your God can end up looking an awful lot like a golden calf. 
This has been tried before. And worship really is a mountain. I mean, it's not a physical mountain. But it's interesting how often in the Bible, big things happen on mountains. When God is going to meet with people in a very significant way, it happens up on a mountain. Why? Because there's something holier about mountains? No, because it's a kind of physical image of the fact that worship is a meeting with God. It's a place where heaven and earth meet together in friendship. It's actually a kind of friendship ritual between God in heaven and we who are on earth. It is, worship is, is supposed to be, if it's, if it's true worship, it is an encounter, a genuine encounter with God's presence and God's purposes. God is with us and God has a plan. And worship is about that. It's really dialed into that. And, and it, so it's this kind of friendship ritual between heaven and earth. But you don't have to look at the Bible very long. I don't even think you can get out of Genesis 1 and 2 before you realize that God wants the whole world to live in friendship with him. That's the big plan. God wants all of earth to live in friendship with heaven. That is his purpose for things. He wants all life everywhere to be lived consciously in his presence for his purposes. You can think of it maybe in the, in, in, in the mountain uh, metaphor. You can think of it as like the mountain springs, all that water that is in the springs up on the mountain. supposed to flow down into all of the world. God really wants the, the mountain to fill the earth, if you, if you like. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means, number one, our worship, beloved, really needs to be about God. It needs to be God-soaked. The Apostle Paul says, when unbelievers are in your worship services, they should go away, and even not knowing anything about they might think you all are crazy. Like, I don't even know what's really going on in there, but this is what they should say. God is among you. We encountered something there that was really not business as usual. But, as much as worship needs to center on God, the other side of this is also true. God wants the worship thing, you know, our encounter with God's presence and purposes in worship. He wants it to flow out. He wants it to run downhill because God wants us to be living in his presence for his purposes everywhere we are. Now, to get to the series that we're starting today. In the Bible, when God grabs a hold of some people and he brings them into his presence to live for his purposes, that move of God to do that always has a pretty identifiable shape to it. There are certain features you'll see again and again as God does that through the Bible. And what we've tried to do, if you pick up the bulletin in front of you, what we've tried to do is take those features, that shape of when God does that, it has a certain kind of flow to it. We've tried to make that actually the structure of our liturgy here at Trinity. You'll notice there are five big C's that our worship is built around. They're in all caps, you know, behind a bold face throughout your bulletin. When God is going to take people into his presence and, make, and you know, show them what it means to live for his purposes, he calls them, he cleanses them, he consecrates them. We'll talk about that eventually. He communes with them and he commissions them. And those five C's, we've built our whole worship service around this biblical shape of what God does because we want our whole lives to actually have the shape of this thing that God does. And what I want to talk about today, for, for starters, is that this thing that God does, calling us into his presence to live for his purposes, not just in a worship service, but all in all of life, it always begins, you'll notice in the Bible, with a fearfully disruptive, usually, but gloriously liberating call. I want to talk to you about the fact, as Peter says, that you're called. That is, that's ground zero. Christians are called. 
Actually, God's calling the world. But that, it, I, and I want to say two things about this today. I want to talk about the fact that God's call decenters us and that it delivers us. God's call decenters us and it delivers us. Because let, let's start with the idea that God's call just decenters us. So you'll notice, I mean, you guys know, you know your Bibles well. Um, just about every significant thing in the Bible. I mean, maybe not everything, but just about every significant thing in the Bible begins with God calling. You know, he calls and creation happens. Called Abraham. Who else did he call? You know, he called Moses in the burning bush. Called Israel out of Egypt. He called David to be king. Called the disciple. God calls. That's like basic. Things start with that. But I think we've got to just stop for a second, though, and realize that to modern minds, imagine you invited somebody you know who's not a Christian, a neighbor, a friend, a schoolmate, whatever. Imagine you, you got them to come to worship. They were crazy enough to do that with you. And they sit here, and they hear, and they read in the bulletin, God calls us. Now, I want you to just imagine how that, that what they would actually think about that. God calls. I think for, for many people in the modern world, that idea of an opening call where God is calling, that just is so utterly foreign. It, you know, I think it would feel like, well, you, know, you, you Christians get together and you kind of do this play-acting thing because you know, how could that possibly be real? And I think the reason why that just seems so bizarre to, to, to us today is that for centuries, you know, our society has been telling, been telling ourselves this coming-of-age story. Um, this is kind of just in the water of our social life, our cultural life, even if you don't think about it consciously. There's this coming-of-age story, and basically the coming-of-age story is very simple. It's just that all the help and hope and fulfillment that we used to think we needed God for, you know, usually people thought they needed God for their crops to grow, they needed God for an afterlife, they needed God to be truly happy, you know, they thought all this stuff, but we we've finally realized that all that stuff we used to think we needed God for, um, and, you know, let's be honest, a lot of inst old out outdated institutions like family and church and all this, they kind of reinforced this and they taught us this, but we finally have realized now that we've grown up that we can, we can work this stuff out for ourselves. You know, we don't need some God in heaven to, have, to get the help we need, to find the hope we need, to find the fulfillment that we're looking for. I was just kind of thinking about this coming-of-age story, how it's changed in the last maybe 20 years. Because when I was in the seminary 20 years ago and beginning ministry uh, back in Franklin Square, the, the, the kind of popular form of this coming-of-age story was just flat-out God rejection. I mean, it was just flat-out God doesn't exist. Um, you know, the idea was that as our knowledge of the world has grown, as particularly scientific in inquiry has expanded, um, that we've just outgrown this, these superstitions of our more ignorant ancestors about, you know, all this religious, you know, spiritual, supernatural stuff. This really became popular in what were, were called the New Atheists. Anybody still remember Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens? I mean, this was all the rage in, in you know, the early 2000s. Basically, they would just say, you know, God is just a label for what we don't yet know. And those margins are pretty rapidly shrinking. You know, we're going to eventually be able to explain everything. I mean, I, even this week, there's some physicist, I don't, never heard of him, but Brian Cox, who supposedly has now demonstrated scientifically that there's no such thing as a soul. Humans don't have souls. You know, physics has supposedly proven this. And so, you know, the new atheists were very big about this. And it was a popular, extremely popular, I mean, it was all the rage for, you know, five, ten years. But, of course, it was philosophically just very juvenile. Um... I mean, it didn't take, a, even scientists could see that if there is only what science can study, 
Like if the only, we've talked about this many times. If the, if the only reality in all the cosmos is what science is able to study, then you actually can't have, strictly speaking, you can't explain how we even have science because the distinction between mind and matter actually disappears. The mind is just matter. Your mind is just matter and chemicals doing its thing. And so there's no reason whatsoever to think that anything your mind produces is actually true. You know, if your dog barks, you don't, be, you don't evaluate whether it's true. Your dog's just making noise, and humans are no different. And so, you know, this view of reality, that there's only what science can study, it actually destroyed even the foundation of science. Human reason dissolves into brain chemicals and chemical reactions. We suddenly find ourselves living in a, and these new atheists were just very bold about this. We find ourselves living in a cosmos that is absolutely without any order or any meaning or any purpose. The whole idea of good and evil is absurd. It was just very philosophically juvenile and actually very dehumanizing. And it's not surprising that things moved on from that, this coming-of-age story. More recent years have brought us not so much out-and-out God rejection, but I think if you talk to people now, especially younger people, you'll find there's a lot of what we might call God projection, kind of projecting God. And in this view of things, you know, what was once supplied by traditional religions— institutional religions, what used to be supplied by that, you know, that we, we, those used to give us a sense of, you know, being a part of something bigger than ourselves, and that something bigger gives meaning to our lives, and it gives purpose to our lives. It gives us a place where we can have all kinds of communion with other people. Many of you grew up in communities where churches meant something, and it was kind of where you, you had connection. And, and now, for, for a lot of younger people today, they have realized that all that stuff that traditional and institutional religions used to supply, we can, just make, we can just make for ourselves. We can kind of pick and choose beliefs, pick and choose rituals, pick and choose communities as we need to try to have a sense of, you know, kind of some transcendent meaning and reality and community in our lives. I've mentioned to you uh, Tara Isabella Burton's wonderful book, Strange Rites, where she calls these intuitional religions, not institutional religions, but intuitional religions, and this is what she says about them. They reject doctrines and institutional hierarchies and place the locus of authority on people's experiential emotions, what you might call gut instinct. Adherence to these intuitional religions demand agency and creative ownership in their spiritual lives, dissatisfied with the narrowness of the options available. Among the most common sayings I heard among the people I interviewed, says Burton, was, I make my own religion. So it's not so much God rejection as it's God projection, but I want you to notice something about both of these ways of thinking about God. Both of them treat God Now, we're getting to the call. Both of them treat God as an object. God is an imaginary object that we can't find and we don't need for the God rejectors. Or God is kind of one piece in my collage that I'm putting together for self-fulfillment for the God projectors. They both treat God as an object. What neither of these, and I would say modern people in general, in fact, I'd say a lot of even us here in pretty evangelical churches, what we're really not prepared for is a God who is not an object. He is a living, lordly subject. Now, if you guys flash back to your sixth grade grammar class, you know the difference between an object and a subject. An object is something you study and act upon. A subject is a living thing with agency that acts upon you. You're not just an object. I can't just pick you up and move you around. You move under your own power. You choose. You act. You are a subject 
And people are not prepared for a God who is actually a subject, not just an object. You don't fashion God. You don't even find God. God comes to you. God commands us. You know, the people at ba- in the Tower of Babel had this idea. You can somehow get to God from below. And the, I love the biblical text. It says, God came down to see what they were doing. The great, you know, let's reach up and take the throne of this object in heaven. The great subject comes down as Lord, and he just scrambles the whole project. I have never actually read a better description of this fearful idea of God as subject, acting, living, lordly subject. I've never read a better description then late in C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles. And I want to just read something to you from this because he just captures it perfectly here. This is, this is the God we have to do with. He says, the God of popular religion does nothing, demands nothing. He's there if you wish for him, like a book on a shelf. He won't pursue you. There's no danger that at any time heaven and earth should flee away at his glance. If he were the truth, this God of popular religion then we could really say that all the Christian images of kingship were a historical accident of which our religion ought to be cleansed. But it's with a shock that we discover those images of kingship to be indispensable. You've had a shock like that before in connection with smaller matters, when the line pulls at your hand, when something breathes beside you in the darkness. So here, the shock shock comes at the precise moment when the thrill of life is communicated to us along the clue we've been following. It's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry. It's alive. And therefore, this is the, sh- this is the moment when the, sorry, and therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back and proceed no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still a formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that's quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he had found us. One may be in for anything. That's the God we meet in the call to worship. The hidden one who is known only as he reveals himself to us. You don't find him. You don't go, you know, check him out. He, he reveals himself to you. He is the, he's the sovereign one. He sets the time of the encounter. He sets the terms of the encounter. You don't, like, dance around the burning bush until it suddenly ignites. God decides when that's going to happen. And the call to worship each week is a reminder. God initiates relations with us. He sets the terms. It is as gentle and welcoming as an invitation. It is as unsettling every week as a statement of sovereignty. Go out from your father's country and, and go out from your country and your father's house. Follow me. That's the call. That's the God we have to deal with. We don't summon him. He summons us. He speaks to us. We are being addressed. It's a decentering call. So very necessary, so foreign to the modern mind that thinks of God basically 
as an object we summon when we might happen to wish for him. The call decenters us. But in all the fierceness of that, it's a call, you'll notice, Peter says it delivers us. Because this is not just, when Peter's talking, when he says you've been called out of darkness, this is not just a sovereign call, it's a saving call. It's not just a decentering call. You are out of the driver's seat and God is absolutely taking charge. No, he's actually just stating that he's already in charge because he is. It's not just sovereign, though. It's saving. It's a delivering call. This is not just the word of God that spoke and called all things into existence and it still reverberates in the being of every atom in this cosmos. It's not just that sovereign creative word. It's the word of grace of God's love that calls rebels out of darkness. Man, we are rebels. We are, as you know, R.C. Sproul liked to say, we are cosmic traitors. And God calls those traitors, doesn't banish them into darkness, he calls them out of darkness. He calls us out of slavery to the evil one. You know, that old serpent, that dragon who deceived us in Eden and wants us to be ruined so he can, he can destroy God's image in us. God calls us out of slavery, calls us out of that bondage, calls us out of our spiritual blindness to the fact we were made for God and life is lived only in his presence, calls us out of his own condemnation of us, out of the death we deserve. He calls us out of that darkness. And I want you to notice that Peter tells us he calls us into two things. He calls us out of that darkness into friendship with God and freedom in his kingdom. And I just want to unpack just briefly what Peter says about we've been called delivered, this delivering call, been called into friendship and called into freedom. We've been called by God's grace into friendship with him, and it's captured really beautifully in those words, his own. Do you see those in verse 9? Have your text for a moment. Look at verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is friendship language. This is fellowship language. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not, not reckoning their transgressions, their sins against them. That's God's posture. In, in what we call the gospel, the good news, God just announces reconciliation. He doesn't offer it even so much. He doesn't come to us and say, you know, I've kind of been thinking we should, make a, we should make arrangements for us to be friends. We should try to figure out how we can, you know, be together instead of against each other. He comes, the gospel is the announcement. God's just done it. God's just made the arrangements. He's just destroyed his own wrath against us. He has exhausted his own wrath against us. It's what Paul says, in, or Peter says here in verse 10. Once you were not a people, now you just are. Because <laughs> Jesus just took care of that. Once you had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. Let's think about this call into friendship. See, God is, God is God's a reconciling God. God, he's determined. He's, he's so much more determined than we are. He's determined that we have all of him, all of him. You've got, look, you guys know a little bit about God. Actually, most of you don't know very much about God. I'll just be honest, you don't, uh, you know, with all due respect. You know, we have these piddling little domesticated ideas about God, but you know something of him. You have a little idea how great he is, how glorious he is, how good he is, how gracious he is. You've tasted, you've tasted thimblefuls of who God is. Someday you're going to live in his presence and you see him face to face. I mean, it's... <laughs> God's determined that you have all of him. He wants you to know all of his glory. You'll, you'll never, you'll, you'll, never in eternities of eternities will we ever get to the bottom of how glorious God is. And he's absolutely determined that in us having all of him, 
he's going to have all of us. He wants all of you, every drop of your energy and affection and, 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 and zeal and the fire of your being. He wants it to be, he's going to make it his own. And you'll notice this call out of darkness. It's external and it's internal, isn't it? The external call into friendship is, you know, we know it as the, you know, the, the, the word of God. You know, now in the scriptures, we know it as the good news that God has taken all the demands of his law and he's taken them on himself. And he just announces he's done this. He doesn't say like, what do you guys think? You know, should I do this? He, he, and we, are, we hear the announcement, the external call of the gospel is, God has done this, beloved. He's done it. It's finished, Jesus said. I've taken all the demands of, of my own law on myself. Every single precept I've satisfied. Every single penalty I've satisfied. Everything that needed to be done, Jesus has come and done it. He has been the obedient one. His righteousness is spotless. And he just says, here you go. You, you, you who are wretched and filthy in your sins, I just give you my righteousness. My obedience is for you. And I'm taking all your dirt, all your sin, all you, everything that brings God's wrath upon you. I take it on me, all of it. The sins you haven't even committed yet, I'm taking those too. And I'm gonna die on the cross to bear the wrath of God and exhaust his wrath. Those sins cannot ever interfere between you and God anymore. That's the external call of the gospel. And so Paul, in, when he's preach, uh, Peter, when he's preaching in Acts, he says, God therefore commands all men to repent. Because God has done this. He commands people. Now, come back to me and be reconciled. That's the external call of the gospel. But you know something? And this is where I, I just want to say, our, our ref, we, we call ourselves a reformed church. This is a historical thing. Reformed churches also want to bring out something else the Bible says, though. Because you know what? God could give that external call. Look what Jesus has done. And God could give that call all day long and no one would repent. God could call to the nations from now till eternity and say, look what I've done, here's the good news, and no one would repent. The Bible also tells us there's an internal call. That the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead gets into hearts, gets into souls, gets into minds that don't trust God, haven't trusted him since Eden, don't obey God, don't want to obey God, don't even want to be reconciled to God on his terms. And the Holy Spirit just gets into hearts and he just somehow works in us to make us believe. He destroys the enmity that we so naturally have against God. He just finds a way of taking that hard heart of stone and turning it into a heart of flesh that can actually drink in like soft soil the love of God and in drinking in the love of God experience something the Bible calls faith, trust, rest. It's an external and internal call, this call to friendship. And we, what comes out of this call? You are called out of darkness into what? Into intimacy with God and an identity. You're chosen. I, I hope this doesn't insult you. I don't know if I'd have chosen you, sorry lot. I'm serious. I sure wouldn't have chosen me. I look at the people God's chosen and starting with myself and I'm like, I don't know what he was thinking. I mean, from the, from the start to the finish of the Bible, God just picks losers and it doesn't look to me like anything's changed with all due respect. As I look in the mirror, what in you is there to choose? And yet, I mean, the Bible just smashes our pride. And yet it says you are chosen. God chose you. He didn't be like, oh man, I'm out of options, I guess. No, he specifically, by name, created you 
And before he even created you, he chose you. I will spend eternity with this one as my son, my daughter. And this one will rule my kingdom forever. With me. You're a chosen race. You're a holy nation. You are a kingdom of priests who can walk into the holy of holies now because the, tur- the, the curtain has been torn. You belong. You are friends of God. And because of that call into friendship, you are his own, there's then the further dimension of the call because it's not just this call that delivers us. It's not just a call into friendship with God and just the staggering reality of that. But it is a call into freedom too. Because to those, and it's important, the sequence. This is the gospel sequence. God loves those whom he then changes. See, I want to change people and then love them. But the sequence of the gospel is exactly the opposite. God starts loving on people, and then he changes them. That's just glorious. That's why I have hope, because God loved me before I was changed. And so he's changing me because he loves me. I don't have to be changed, so he loves me. And that's the move of the gospel. But those that God calls into friendship, he then calls to freedom. He can say in verse 11, now beloved, listen, that's not, don't blow past those words. I know I say beloved in the sermon, y'all, you don't even hear it. That's how pastors talk. No, it's not how pastors talk. I call you beloved because God loves you. (laughs) And because you're beloved, Peter says, I urge you. Because you're the holy nation, because you are God's chosen race, because you're his priests, I now urge you, I call you to freedom. Notice the Abrahamic language in verse 11, as sojourners and exiles. That is identical in the Greek to the phrase that Abraham uses when he's buying a burial plot for Sarah, his wife, after she dies in Canaan. And he goes to the Hittites and he says, I have been a sojourner and an exile among you. What he's saying there is, God promised me this land, but I don't yet necessarily have possession of it, so I'm going to buy a burial plot to kind of put my dead in the ground here because this is, this is our land. But it's interesting, Abraham, this is his land. God has promised him this land, but he doesn't yet have full possession of it. So in that sense, he's a sojourner in this land while he waits for God to actually give him possession of it. And he's a kind of exile when it comes to the Canaanite culture around him. It's exactly what we are in the world. This is our world. This is our inheritance. Someday y'all are going to live in this world and rule this world. This is going to be your home when God glorifies this world and purges it from sin. This is going to be your world. These are going to be your cities. This is going to be your, whatever the world looks like when God glorifies. This is your spot. Meanwhile, there's a lot of Canaanites. And God hasn't yet given his people full possession, but we are in that sense strangers and exiles here. This world is not, I'm not just passing through this world. This is my destination, the new heavens and new earth that God is going to glorify. But... For now, there's a sense of being an exile and being a kind of sojourner here because I'm surrounded by a lot of stuff that I can't really be at home in. And it's to those people who, because they're with God, because their relationship with him is what it is, that has changed their relationship with everything else. Because I'm in relationship with God as a friend, my relationship with everything else has now changed in a way that brings freedom. Because I'm with God, I'm in the light now, what Paul, Peter is saying here is all kinds of other powers, and there are lots of powers in the world, all kinds of other claims and agendas and priorities and loves and loyalties, they've just lost their hold on me. Because I am the Lord's, because I'm a friend of God, I am freed from all kinds of other claims and agendas and loves and 
priorities, and so on. Notice the, the kinds of freedom he describes of these beloved. There's an internal freedom, an internal freedom from wild, soul-devouring passions. I, I urge you to abstain, to walk away from passions of the old, dying humanity which war against your soul. Do you guys ever feel, I sure do, that, that weird paradox of being a Christian who knows you're a child of God and yet stuff in your soul is just at war with your soul? It's eating you up. There are passions in our souls. There, 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 is, there, there, there is habitual emotional tumult that happens in the souls even of those who are children of God. Anger. How much anger is enough anger that you're no longer angry? Resentment. How much resentment do you need to resent till you're finally not resentful anymore? Anxiety. How much freaking worrying finally makes it better? Lust. Is that fire ever satisfied? How much porn do you got to look at till you don't want to look anymore? This is, these are passions that just suck at the soul. And what Peter is saying here is, you all are different now. Rooted in the love of God. Your roots are just down in that soil of God's love and empowered by the very Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. I urge you, just step away from all kinds of habitual emotional tumult. And you all can begin to retrain your emotions and retrain your passions around a very simple question every day of your life. What has God called me to do? What's God called me to do? And I'll tell you what has no place in that question. Lust? Anxiety? Wrath? Resentment? What's God called me to do? And when I keep my eyes on that question, what has God called me out of darkness to do? Right here, right now, I am retraining my emotions in the stability of wisdom and virtue. Look around. What good needs to be done? And then don't, don't overthink it. Just do it. Do what God's called you to do. That's internal freedom. Freedom from just all that raging stuff that just devours without end. That's freeing. But he also says there's external freedom. There's external freedom. He goes on to say, beginning in verse 12 and 13 and so on, he goes on to say that we have been freed, not just from those internal wild soul-devouring passions, but we've been freed externally from being co-opted from being owned, from being used by the regimes and the revolutions of our time. This is very interesting. He, he gets explicitly political here. And he says, you've been freed from being sort of co-opted by the regimes of your time and the revolutionary movements of your time. I think this is something that North American evangelicals need to hear. I've realized over the last year we are obsessed with partisan politics. And I mean obsessed I have seen things in the last year, it's been going on for a long time, but I've seen things from people I love and respect that have literally identified Jesus Christ the Lord with particular parties, particular ideologies, particular candidates, particular political movements in our North American partisan scene. I mean, this time, it's blasphemous. It is blasphemous. It's shocking sometimes. Like Jesus is hitched to that train now. And Peter says, you've been freed from political captivity. Imagine being a Christian in Rome. How dominated do you feel? How politically disenfranchised do you feel? 
But notice he says a couple of things about this freedom. You've been freed from political captivity. Because you fear God, now notice that in verse 17, you fear God, you fear no emperor. This would have been a wild thing when you could get fed to lions. Because you fear God, you fear no emperor. No king, no governor, no emperor commands my conscience. God commands my conscience. No king, no governor, no emperor commands my allegiance. God commands my allegiance. Verse 16 says, live as people who are free. Jesus has set me free. I have one ultimate king. I have one ultimate authority. My conscience is enslaved to one king. My, my allegiance is given to one king, and everything else is relativized. It, yea, Nero himself, in all his power, is small fish compared to the Lord and King that I serve. I fear no emperor. Feed me to the lions. He'll raise me from the dead. I'm fearless. But because I fear God, I not only fear no emperor, I honor and obey. I don't fear, but I honor and obey rulers for his sake. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. I don't want to be subject to these rulers. (laughs) Be subject for the Lord's sake. Because in serving those rulers, in, in obeying them, in submitting to their rule, you are obeying Jesus. You are doing this for Jesus' sake, because, you, because and here's, here's the thing, what's it for? Is it just to, you know, you know, grovel before these authorities? No, you don't fear them. You're obeying them for a very particular reason that is related to what Jesus is doing, and he goes on to explain this. Now, anything that requires me to disobey Jesus, I'm out. I disobey the king. I disobey the emperor. I don't fear the emperor. I fear, I fear the, the, you know, my high king, Jesus. So I fear him, and I ultimately am, am loyal to him, which means if you tell me to disobey him, I'm not going to obey. But in anything that doesn't disobey Jesus, I'm willing to honor and submit. But why? Why? Because my king has a social agenda. Christians, I hope you're hearing me right now. Your king has a social agenda. And that social agenda is not hitched to any regime or any revolutionary movement, and it's not threatened by any regime, and it's not threatened by any revolutionary movement. I don't, in one sense, you know, who's emperor, who's going to try to overthrow the emperor, this stuff, it matters, but it's really relativized because my king has a social program, and what I'm doing within the particular political situation I find myself in, what I'm doing there is about what my king is doing. It's about his social program, and what is that social program? A social program that's just going to proceed calmly, regardless of what the socio-political context might be. Maybe you're in, I don't know, maybe you're in North Korea. It's the same social program. Maybe you're in the most liberated country in the entire world where everyone is just completely free to do as they please. Regardless of your socio-political context, your king's social agenda doesn't change, and it's just going to proceed calmly, and what is it? You're living in a way that makes God attractive. That's the social program. You honor, verse 17, you honor everyone. Oh, man, that might mean you dump your social media. You honor everyone. You act toward all the craziest Gentiles you meet. You act toward them honorably in a way that commands respect. Because you're a Jesus follower, and God's reputation is on the line. You honor everyone. That's part of the social program. You love the saints like family. That world out there is going to know that Jesus came to save the world. They need to see his disciples loving each other. So you treat the saints like family. You get into brother-sister relations with people. You don't sit 
you know, on your couch, living your life, detached from the body of Christ. You have gifts, they have gifts, you get together and share those gifts, you treat each other like family. Love the brotherhood, verse 17. Love, it's called the brotherhood, man. It's a band of brothers, it's real. That's part of the social program. And, you know, verse 12, you do every good deed you possibly can. You make the most of every interaction you possibly can in the circles that God has given and put in front of you because you are called out of darkness to make known the excellencies of God. Church, that's the social program. You want a political program? That's it. We are showing off the excellencies of God in North America in 2021. That's the social program finding every possible good deed we can, seeking to honor everyone we relate with, seeking to love the saints as family because we're trying to show off God. We're trying to show what it looks like when God seeks people, when God saves people, when God helps people, when God stands up for people, when God speaks out for justice for people, when God heals people, when God welcomes people, when God builds, when God beautifies. That's the God we serve. That's the king we serve. And Peter says here, you do that, you will put to silence, verse 15, by doing good, you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There are some really ignorant talkers in North America today. We need to put them to silence by our good deeds. And we're told in verse 12 that it is even possible that as they behold your good deeds, they will one day glorify God when he visits them by his Holy Spirit. Because they will have seen what Christianity in real time really looks like. That's freedom. It just frees you from all the, you know, being shaken by the shakable when it gets shaken. You know what to do wherever you are, under whatever circumstances. That'll change the world. That will change the world. Live as people who are free. That's the call. Call to fellowship. Call to freedom. Because, you know, those who are no longer slaves Let's be honest, they often still think like slaves. They still feel like slaves. They still speak like slaves. They still act like slaves. It takes a long time to get the slavery out of the slave. We've got some brutal examples of that in our society today. People need a lot of ministry after they, you know, the external bondage is broken, but then there's the internal healing. Learning to think like a free person, feel like a free person, speak and act like a free person. That's what the Exodus was about. Easy to get Israel out of Egypt in a sense. Pharaoh was the small potatoes in a sense. Getting Egypt out of the hearts of Israel, that took a lot of ministry. God has called us out of darkness. And now we are learning how to live as children of God, as heirs, inheritors of his kingdom. So the next three sermons, what I want to talk about it's kind of three big pieces of that training program. We're called out of darkness. Thank God we're free. But let's talk over the next few weeks about these three other big pieces of God's training program as we're kind of deprogrammed from slavery. Three gifts of this God who's called us, but enough for today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've called us. That's just too cheap a way to say it. We owe everything to the fact that you've called us. Thank you that we are out of darkness, and we pray that you'll teach us to live in the light. In Jesus' good name, amen.